Horses are beautifully adapted runners, and you don't have to look far to see why. Other wild species of the genus Equus, such as the zebra, live on open savanna, as did the wild ancestors of the modern horse on Miocene grasslands up to 17 million years ago. For such animals, running ability is clearly at a premium in the survival stakes. The running of horses is also very efficient as well as fast because the bulk of the leg musculature is concentrated in the upper parts of the legs such that the elongate lower parts are spindly and light. So there's a minimum waste of energy on changes of momentum as the legs move back and forth. And the elongated tendons can store much energy as they are stretched at each footfall, returning it as the foot pushes off the ground. Compare the human arm to the forelimb of Equus and note the corresponding modification of proportions of the horse's leg bones. The upper parts, corresponding to the arm and supporting the bulky muscles, are relatively shortened, while the lower parts, equivalent to our hand and accompanied by little more than tendons, are greatly extended. Hence the equivalent to our wrist is over a third of the way up the horse's leg. Moreover, the side digits are reduced. The horse runs on the tips of its middle fingers, its hooves equivalent to the fingernails. The neighbouring fingers are now only present as vestigial splints, and the outer digits are entirely lost. The same also applies to the hind limbs. This middle digit is spring-loaded by thick flexor tendons running down its back surface. These are stretched as the hoof lands and is bent forward by ground reaction to the body weight, and they return their potential energy by flicking the hoof back at toe-off. Hence again, there is maximum energy efficiency. And what has these animals out in the open on the savanna in the first place? Grass. Here is a plentiful, rapidly replenished food supply, but it's tough because of silica spicules called phytoliths within the leaves. These wear the teeth extensively, and so the crowns are greatly extended, a condition termed hypsodonty, with infolded enamel ridges which compensate for the wear. These run deep into the jaws, from which they are continuously erupted as their grinding surfaces are worn away, until old age, that is, when no more crown is left. How did this integrated complex of adaptations evolve? Comparison with the next closest, albeit distant, living relatives, the tapir and the rhinoceros, may give some clues as to the likely primitive features shared by their common ancestors. These include more numerous toes on the feet, which are splayed out forwards. On the tapir, there are four on the forelimbs and three behind. And its teeth are low-crowned with transverse ridges. These are both features we'll be seeing shortly in the fossils of the most primitive horses. 
and only the fossils can tell us about the timing of changes and the existence and distribution of extinct forms. The fossil record reveals that North America was the evolutionary cradle for today's horses. A distinct irony, since the native horses there became entirely extinct some 10,000 years ago. The horses there now, which we think of as being so typical of the North American landscape, were actually only reintroduced from Europe in the 17th century. Fossils of primitive horses had already been discovered in tertiary deposits in the western United States in the latter half of the 19th century. And fired with enthusiasm to find fossil evidence for evolution, American paleontologists, such as Othniel Marsh, started to assemble their finds into what they believed to be an evolutionary sequence. By the early years of this century, as this old exhibit of the 1920s from the American Museum of Natural History in New York shows, it was believed that the fossil horses of North America formed a single lineage, stretching back through time to smaller and smaller forms, with more primitive low-crowned teeth and less specialised leg construction. The idea of innate evolutionary tendencies towards increased size and specialization through time, or orthogenesis as it was called, was then a powerful influence on paleontological thought. However, later discoveries brought together by George Gaylord Simpson completely overturned this simplistic notion. The old idea of orthogenesis is dead. The revision of the history of horses continues today as paleontologists such as Professor Bruce McFadden from the University of Florida reanalyze the classification of the fossil species and using modern dating methods set them in a more accurate chronological context. The starting point for the classification is the selection of morphological characters to be used in grouping the species. These may include both discrete features and measurements of the skull and other bony elements, as well as the teeth. From various criteria, the particular form shown by any given character, its character state, may be judged as being either primitive, that's to say probably present in the original ancestor of the group, or secondarily modified, or derived. So, for example, we know from the living evolutionary cousins of the horses, such as the tapir, that having three toes on the hind limbs is the primitive condition. While having one, as in living horses, is derived. Species can now be grouped according to how many derived character states they share. Thus, for three given species, two will share more derived character states with each other than either does with the third. So it's likely that the evolutionary split between these two post-dated that giving rise to the third species. More and more species can be included in this diagram, which then clusters together groups of species in a branching scheme of relationships known as a cladogram. In fact, different cladograms can sometimes result if different characters are used, but we'll stick with one here for the sake of simplicity, which Bruce McFadden has constructed for one group of mid-Miocene horses in North America on the basis of a very large suite of characters. 
accurate dating of the fossils, both by stratigraphical correlations of the beds containing them and absolute dating by radiometric methods, then allows the cladogram of relationships to be stretched, as it were, into the time dimension to produce a reconstructed phylogeny, or family tree of evolutionary relationships. It's now clear, then, that far from forming a simple lineage, the horses evolved as a diverse bushy clade, with at times over 16 coexisting species in North America alone, summarising by true speciation, that's to say where branching evolution, cladogenesis, occurred like this, and others by simple descent with modification, anagenesis, like this. Even the initial genus of the traditional story, Hyracotherium, or Aeohippus as it used more popularly though incorrectly to be called, is now known to be something of a ragbag of different primitive species of which this specimen represents just one. One of these species of Hyracotherium though was almost certainly the ancestor for the entire horse clade. These are not only the oldest fossil horses appearing in the latest Paleocene some 54 million years ago, but the most primitive as well. Hyracotherium retained more toes on the feet than did later horses, with four on the forelimbs and three on the hindlimbs. And these were splayed out on the ground. Nevertheless, the toes are still reduced from the primitive mammalian condition, seen, for example, in a yet more primitive non-horse relative, Phanacodus, in which there were five toes on each foot. What about the feeding habits of Hyracotherium? Its teeth are strikingly small and simple, with low crowns, showing no signs of the hypsodonty characteristic of the modern horse. Clearly, this was not a grass-grazing form. In fact, it's uncertain if grasses had evolved by this time, and certainly there's no evidence for extensive grasslands then. Presumably, it fed on softer, succulent vegetation, including perhaps a mixture of leaves and fruits. Striking evidence in favour of such feeding habits comes from an extraordinary fossiliferous locality in West Germany. At Messel, near Darmstadt, a small rift basin contains organic-rich shales which were deposited in a lake in Middle Eocene times some 50 million years ago. Quarrying in this sequence has provided good exposures of the shales. The sediment is finely laminated as a result of what are thought to have been annual algal blooms. The total absence of any fossil burrows or of other evidence for bottom-dwelling organisms, together with the high organic content, indicates that the bottom waters were devoid of oxygen. The remains of animals and plants washed into the lake from surrounding streams and rivers could therefore sink to the bottom without being torn apart by scavengers and could there become buried with, in some cases, exquisite fossilization through bacterial replacement of some of their soft tissues. Although the laminated sediments are easily split, their high water content means that they readily distort and crumble on drying out, and so elaborate procedures have to be used to conserve the fossils. Years of such painstaking recovery and study of the fossils of Messel have allowed a detailed picture of the life and conditions around the lake to be built up, as Dr Jens Franzen of the Senckenberg Institute in Frankfurt explains. This is Eocene Lake Messel as it 
could have been about 50 million years ago. There was a small lake surrounded by a dense rainforest of subtropical to tropical vegetation. The mean annual temperature was well above 20 centigrade, as indicated by alligators, crocodiles, and palm trees. And in the background, you are looking at an active volcano because about 60% of the clayish sediments of the Mesoformation are made up of sediments of volcanic origin. In the foreground, you see three horses, a small group of horses. The little fossil horses here represent early offshoots from European Hyracotherium. Numerous fossils of them have provided a wealth of detail on their original anatomy and habits. For example, specimens reveal the presence of a short, bushy tail and pointed ears, together with a slightly elongate muzzle. And direct evidence for what they fed on is shown by fossilized gut contents, now known from several specimens. In this specimen of Propaleotherium parvulum, for example, a dark mass of material is visible in what would have been the hindgut region. And this contains not only leaves, but grape pips. It is even possible to identify the kinds of leaves browsed upon. This is the SEM uh, of the first gut content ever discovered at Messel. It came from the first horse, which was discovered in 1975. And what you can see is the mosaic structure of the cell walls from the lower side of a leaf. So this is an indication that the gut content was made up of a thick package of leaves. And this is the proof that these early horses have been really browsers at that time. It's even possible to tell that this sleeve uh, belonged to a laurel, because as you can see here with this close-up, uh, that we have the typical structure of a stomatum of uh, this kind of plants. Returning now to the North American fossil record, it seems that the descendants of Hyracotherium showed relatively little increase in body size and diversity remained relatively low through the ensuing 30 million years of the Eocene and the Oligocene. But then, in early Miocene times, from about 20 to 25 million years ago, the horses rapidly diversified as these skulls representing their genera show. Many lineages did show a marked increase in body size although there were also some dwarfing lineages contrary to the old orthogenetic story. Diversity remained high throughout the Miocene, but then rapidly fell around the start of the Pliocene about five million years ago, leading to the total extinction of horses in North America some 10,000 years ago in the late Pleistocene. The living horse there, of course, was reintroduced from Europe. The early Miocene radiation coincided with extensive climatic change in North America. High-latitude cooling led to a drying of mid-latitude climates, and with this came the shrinking of the forests and the spread of semi-open savanna. 
It was this environmental change which seems to have triggered one of the main phases of diversification of the horses. For the great majority of the new Miocene genera were grazers, cashing in, as it were, on the grass boom. There were, in fact, two distinct groups of these grazers, the hipparion group on the left and the equines on the right. It's from among the equines that the modern horse, Equus itself, evolved. The molar teeth of both the grazing groups show parallel evolutionary trends for hypsodonty, the relative extension of the crowns which is adaptive for the increased wear associated with grazing. These examples come on the left from one of the earliest grazers, a species of Merikippus, and to its right three successively younger species of hipparions. Interestingly, the increased hypsodonty is found even in some of the dwarfed forms and so cannot just be correlated with increasing body size. The earliest of the grazers were various species of the genus Merikippus, which arose some 17 million years ago. And although there had already been some evolutionary modification of the limbs in earlier horses, it was in this genus that one very important innovation appeared. The equivalent of the wrist is here raised well off the ground with the effect that the animal must have sprung along on the very tips of its digits, much as in the modern horse. Indeed, it's probable that the central digit on each foot transmitted by far the greatest proportion of the animal's weight to the ground. The side toes were relatively reduced. But if we go back a little further in time to the Oligocene Mesohippus, although the side toes are again somewhat reduced, the equivalent of the wrist is much nearer the ground, and the ends of the digits are spread more evenly on it. It's likely, then, that Mesohippus ran on all three digits of each foot, supported on their undersides by large pads acting as shock absorbers at each footfall. In Merikippus, in contrast, with the wrists and ankles raised, the spring-loading of the digits by the flexor tendons would have provided the main shock absorption mechanism. With this change came the possibility for much greater extension of the lower parts of the limbs and further progressive reduction of the side digits. Both these features would have been favoured by natural selection for increased biomechanical efficiency during running and jumping in the more open habitats being occupied by Merikippus and its descendants. Most of the grazing lineages retained the three-toed condition, though with further reduction of the side digits. But it was in the equines that the process went yet further, and in the late Miocene a number of genera, such as Dinohippus, evolved, in which the side digits became vestigial, leading to the one-toed condition with a single enlarged hoof on each foot. It's thought likely that Dinohippus itself was indeed the ancestor of the modern horse Equus. So the combination of features such as hypsodonty and extension of the lower limbs with loss of the side digits, together with other behavioural aspects such as herding, which make modern horses so well adapted to dwelling on open savannas and prairies, were by no means unique attributes of Equus. Rather, they were present to varying extents throughout the clade of grazing horses that diversified so extensively in the Miocene. Why none of these other genera survived beyond about two million years ago is, frankly, still a bit of a puzzle. 
It would certainly be a mistake to suppose that Equus somehow outcompeted the others because even that eventually became extinct in North America. Given that further major climatic changes were again operative at this time, with increased drying of the climate and spread of prairies, it's tempting to speculate that these may have had something to do with it. Nor should we forget that the horses shared the prairies of North America with many other successful grazers, as indeed do the zebras in Africa today. And so interactions with these may also have had a part to play, if not by direct competition, perhaps by progressive replacement in the various niches vacated by the horses as they became extinct. So far in this program, we've concentrated on the evolution of the grazing horses of North America. That is by no means all there is to be told. Within North America, there also evolved, alongside the grazers, a distinct clade, albeit of low diversity, named the Ankytheas. Some of these rather rapidly evolved large body size, yet it's quite evident from their teeth that they were not grazers. The relatively short crowns of their molars extend only to jaw level, rather than extending high up into the jaw, as with the hypsodont teeth of grazing horses. The low but broad teeth of the Ankytheas were probably associated with browsing life habits, and members of this clade successfully spread across to the Old World as well. This example, Sinohippus, as its name suggests, comes from China. Indeed, offshoots of several of the North American groups of horses spread at different times into the Old World, initially perhaps in the Eocene around the northern margin of the young North Atlantic Ocean but thereafter across the Bering Straits during episodes of temporary emergence of land there when global sea level fell. So there's the ironic possibility that the climatic changes, especially the glaciations, which possibly led to the extinction of horses in North America, may, by affecting sea levels, also have allowed it to get across to and survive in the Old World. So, far from being all worked out at the beginning of the century, the evolutionary history of the horses has been extensively rewritten as more fossils have been recovered and interpreted in functional terms, more precise methods of classification used, and more exact dating methods applied. Now it's possible to see the evolution of the horses in terms of a rich interplay between diverse adaptive evolution in changing conditions, expansions and contractions in the numbers of species, episodes of geographical dispersal and regional extinction, and all manner of chance factors, not the least of which was the human domestication of Equus cabalus, the common horse itself, during the late Neolithic, about 5,000 years ago. Sixty-five million years ago, the landscapes of Earth looked similar to today's wildernesses. Then swathes of forest covered the globe.
inside those forests, some animals were very different. For 140 million years,